Everything's going to be all right. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, August, nope, September 2nd, 2016. This week is episode 429. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and this week's guest will be Dr. J. David Miller. We're going to talk a little bit about allergens and mold today and what practitioners should know. But before we get started, we want to thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, and last but not least, please check out the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To John Lapotere, IQ Solutions in Orlando, Florida, for answering last week's IQ Radio Trivia Question. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for today, Friday, September 2nd, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for this week's IQ Radio Trivia Question. What is the common name for seasonal allergic rhinitis? Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is J. David Miller. Professor Miller is also a uh, Ph.D. He did his uh, secondary training at the, uh, let's see, University of New Brunswick before studying at the University of Portsmouth in England, where he was also a NATO science postdoctoral fellow. He began his post-university career at Agriculture Canada in 1982 and became head of the Fusarium Mycotoxin Program in 1988. He became a professor and uh, a research chair at Carleton University in 2000, and from 1998 to 2008, he was a visiting scientist and science advisor in the Air Health Effects Section of Health Canada. 
His work involves the development of methods to assess exposure to the determinants of respiratory health in indoor environments and on fungal toxins in food and feed. He's published over 300 papers on fungi and fungal toxins and has co-written nine books on public health aspects of exposure to fungi and has several patents. He has served on many national and international committees on mold and dampness in the built environment, and currently he serves on the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Committee that produces practice parameters for environmental allergens, and that's what we want to talk a lot about today. Let's first get some music to welcome Dr. Miller. Growing All right, Dr. Miller, do we have you? Oh, yeah, I'm still here. I was wondering if I was allowed to ask the answer Cliff's question, but well, I'll give it a pass. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> Actually, I think someone, someone already, already got it. it. So I bet. <laughs> yeah. it was I bet they're a sufferer, too. So. Yes, they may be. They I may be. Am. But you well, can give the answer because someone already gave it. So, okay. Well, it, I, at least I would call it hay fever. That's go. correct. They got it. All right. Well, let's uh, let's start. You know, I, I saw you at the microbiology. And thank you, Cliff, for a ta- for a, a subject matter appropriate question. No problem. <laughs> well done. All right. We uh, we talked at the microbiology of the built environment conference that was in Boulder this year, and I, I you know I mentioned to you then. I still think every IAQ practitioner should hear what you talked about. So, can you summarize for our listeners? some of the, you know, what your presentation was on and some of the key points. Yeah, well, of course, as all of you know that, you know, scientists and academics were, the first thing I want to say is here's my first slide, but but we don't have that today. <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, I think, I think, Joe, the last time I was on your program, we were talking about likely the green book from the AIHA. Yes. And um, and I think the first point I'd want to make is that probably everybody in this um, audience at the present time or ultimately listen to this comes from a different perspective. Some some folks are worry and work on the industrial hygiene part of it in the non-industrial workplaces and homes, other people you know, focus on home inspections and try to, you know, fix problems with IEQ with, uh, in, in, in that context. Other people are, you know, remediators address problems a lot with mold, I suppose. Um, and so we all have a different perspective and, and, uh, and uh, I think the first uh, the, uh, the the thing that was a little bit different about my my what you heard in um, in Boulder was was I was talking about how now the physicians are looking at at a world that we've been all trying to wade around in, and you know in many cases for decades. Um, and that and 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 you know when a, a patient is um, has allergic disease, they normally go, of course, to an allergist. And and uh, and the way allergy doctors and other medical professionals address their their um, treatment and diagnosis or diagnosis and treatment of different illnesses is that they depend 
normally on what they learned in medical school, of course, but but also that they they uh, they depend on on uh, good advice from cognizant authorities, and that can come from you know institutions like the Institute of Medicine or the WHO, but but very often it comes from their own professional organizations, much like. In industrial hygiene, we depend a lot on what AIHA and ACJH has to say. So I shared with the group, and we'll talk a bit about this today, a process that began actually in 2008 um, when the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology set about to, in one case or one or two cases, update some of what are called clinical practice parameters, but do new clinical practice parameters uh, uh, on... uh, the allergens that occur in buildings, and 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 uh, we don't really think about that all that much in in industrial hygiene, uh, but yet it's extremely important in in buildings. Um, and so, what what these parameters are, and I described the really quite arduous uh, process of creating them, is an expert committee is is created. Um, um, hundreds, in some cases, thousands of scientific publications are are examined by the group, and and then over about a 18 month period, um, um, an analysis is done, um, working very hard, I should say, to 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 figure out how would you best diagnose um, um, someone who was allergic to the allergen under, allergens under discussion. How would you treat them? What is the best way? And because we were dealing with the built environment, what what are the things about the built environment that that might favor those allergens, and and therefore what kind of advice should you give to patients? And that that's a that once that is drafted, then it's reviewed by a, a main committee, if you like, and then it goes out to peer review all over the the world really but it goes to in this case the i don't know 10,000 allergy doctors in North America or in the world that belong and 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 they're all entitled to comment much like in a in a government regulation and then you know of course as you would imagine all that is is addressed and then the, the parameter gets ultimately approved and then it's submitted for publication and the whole peer review process begins again um, so what what we did was we looked at um, furry pets. So I think most people know that dogs and cats and other pets make allergens, and you know there's stuff to say about that. The, the second one that we that was done was on rodents. So that the, you know we see mice and rats in buildings, of course, and um, so there's little and there's occupational issues with rodents. Um, and then the third one was about cockroaches, and of course that's a pretty nearly exclusively built environment context. So there's quite a bit about buildings there, and there we started to introduce ideas about, you know, how do you evaluate the qualifications of of someone who's trying to sell you, in this case, uh, you know, integrated pest management or chemicals or whatever for dealing with cockroaches. Uh, and and pr- try to give that advice to physicians so that they, you know, they when they, you know, recognize that there's allergy to cockroaches and inflammatory consequences to a cockroach exposure, that you you do tell the patient that you need to be careful 
in choosing the person who might come in and, you know, do the treatments and, and so on. So that's all analyzed out. These are all open access, so you can read them. And then the third one, which I, uh, yeah, the third one, which I would like to um, spend some time on is the house dust mite parameter. And then finally, we produce some material on fungi. Okay, so and these are what I would commonly refer to as the AAAAI. I believe it is practice parameters. That's correct. Yeah. Okay, and then you start. Well, we to, usually say quad AI. Yes. Quad AI. Okay, that'll help. Yeah, <laughs> it makes it mouthful. easier. It doesn't <laughs> It's a mouthful. Um, so I, I think the next thing that really caught my attention was your, your discussion of dust mite. And, and you mentioned that um, that was one of these practice parameters. And and um, you talked a little bit about the history of it. And I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit more about the dust mite, where they came from sure. and, and where they're at now and so on. So, I mean, it is a really interesting story for us in North America, um, I think. It's astounding. Um so I, I feel sure that almost everyone listening today knows that dust mites cause allergy and asthma. In fact, it's one of the things we know that causes asthma, house dust mite allergen. Um, what, what is at least interesting to me is that um, the idea that house dust mite allergen could cause asthma was first discussed in Holland and in Japan about the same time. In the middle of the 1970s, um, uh, 60s, about towards the middle to late 1960s. And at that time, it was, of course, considered a wild and crazy idea, much like mold could cause health problems. Huh. And at the, 10, 15 years ago, it was really considered so far out there that what are these crazy people talking about in Holland and Japan? Um, and... Um, and, uh, you know, there lots of work had to be done. And it wasn't really until 1988 that um, it was agreed by the, you know, the WHO, the World Health Organization, that house dust mite allergens did, in fact, cause asthma. So it took a very long time, which was people argued, and I got to see some of this when I was a graduate student um, in, in the U.K., as people, you know, took sides and, you know, got mad, you know, just like many other things with the built environment. Uh, so it took a very long time. And and how was that done? Well, firstly, someone had to kind of make the association. In the case of the two hostess mite species, they had to discover the allergen, and that allowed it to be measured in buildings, and it allowed um, antibodies in the affected individuals to be measured in humans. So, so really critical steps that had to be gone through in the journey of science. Um, being able to measure the exposure that you're trying to blame, if you like, or attribute disease or an outcome to in the environment, that took a long time. Um, and then being able to measure the, the effect in the human, not in terms of it in the air or something like that. So that's normally what it takes to make these causal linkages. In North America, in the United States and Canada, astoundingly, I think, in, to many people, um, it, was, um, 
It was not until 1969 in Canada and 1970 in the United States that house dust mites were reported in houses at all. Hmm. Um, and, and at that time, they were rare, at least from the measurements. And so just remember the timeline. The Dutch were working on this in the middle-ish 60s. So uh, a couple of scientists in the United States and Canada started to look for these uh, these little mites in our in at least the northern part of our two countries. I mean the southern part of Canada and the northern above the Mason Dixon line, let's just say in the United States. And um and uh, and indeed uh, they were rare. And uh, I've been measuring hostess mite allergen and big housing studies in Canada for a long time and when I started in the sort of eighty four, eighty five period they were fairly commonly present, but not in any great amount and not in every house. Uh, so from 1969, when they were rare, they got a little bit more common by the early-ish 80s. But by the time I was looking at houses in the middle of the 90s, they were everywhere. And why did that happen? Well, they're little tropical insects that at least genetically come from near Australia. Um and when we tightened our buildings up and, uh, you know, allowed, you know, put carpets in or wall-to-wall uh, carpets and didn't clean the fine dust, and when we increased the humidity and the temperature, we converted a generally hostile environment in our houses uh, to these little ins- to these little mites to, uh, to a very um, happy, um, happy home indeed. And so thus... In almost all our homes in some parts of North America, you can count on the fact that there are dust mites. When I was a child, you wouldn't have been able to find any because the houses leaked so much air that they were dry and, well, cold probably, too. So it's a really interesting thing that for something that causes much of the asthma on the coasts of our countries and the southern part of the United States, um, meaning all but the hard Midwest, a uh, hard West in the center, in the you know, and up in the mountains and the in the Rockies and so on. Most of the allergy uh, to building allergens is to house dust mites, and that has happened in a generation. Um, and, and I so, think you were um, saying, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was. I think you were also saying that. Not too long ago, we didn't think that the dust mites would be basically everywhere. That, you know, the high, dry mountains out in Denver, we probably wouldn't see them get to there, but apparently now they are. Is that accurate? Yeah, well, they, they, they you know, we, you know, yes, the short answer is yes. It, it's, it's, again, over my time of looking at this in detail, because I've been privileged to, to do studies in around 25,000 homes in, in Canada is, um, is yeah, you just wouldn't see this in the, in the driest parts of our continent in the winter, and now it's, it's you know, more, much more common. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's so a long journey of, of tightening our buildings up, which, of course, is a very good thing for energy management, uh, accumulating dust, which is a very bad idea, uh, and uh, and um, and then these these tropical creatures grow. So, 
but I, at least for me, I'm I'm just north of sixty. It's the most amazing thing that something that almost literally didn't exist in my in when I was born is now a ubiquitous cause of allergic disease in our in our uh, continent. Um, so one of the things. So with that said, I had a couple of points to make in in your asking of the introductory question on it. Firstly, look how long it took to come to consensus about this. It took you know, from a bunch of wild and crazy guys saying that dust mites caused allergy, <laughs> uh, who were mocked, frankly. Again, I had the chance to see it myself. Um, uh, that it, it, it did take all that, all that long time from, you know, say, well, 20 years or a bit more to, to get absolute consensus. And now if we ask the question today, do you think dust mites cause asthma, I think most people would be shocked I was asking the question. Um, so a long, long journey. They had to be able to measure the agent in question in both the exposure in the building and in the, in the population. And then they had to wait until there were uh, many studies of the association in many countries. And, and when that happened, then you could say, yeah, how dust mites cause cause uh, asthma and allergy. The, the second broad message is that it's a, for me, it's an icon of how much we've changed our housing um, in, in a generation, in less than a generation. Um, in, in most respects, it's much better. Um, yeah, but in many respects, we haven't always paid attention to the consequences of changes that, that were made. I I also would like to kind of tie this in with the mold just a little bit because I want to start with the fact that the house dust mite, there's there's two types, correct? Just the two types of house dust That's mite. That's correct, yes. And one is more prevalent than the other? Is that accurate? Or? No, it's, it's actually, um, so what the point is, there's two species of house dust mites. One of them munches on skin scales, and every one of us, sheds a teaspoonful of skin scales every three weeks or a month. So but they just fall to the ground. Affected so much that in a house, if you suck air and measure cholesterol, you can measure cholesterol in air because there's so much skin scale in the air. Wow. So that's house dust mite food for one of the species. And the other species is a little bit more general as the other species, Stomatophagoides ferroni. Is a little bit more general, but it also likes um, skin scales, and they have a small difference in their um, preferred uh, environmental conditions. One likes it a tad warmer than the other. In most places, though, in many, I would say it's still it's true in most places. They're both are present. Um, and you would only rarely find it that one is is dominant now. So there's they they are two species, but they like slightly different things okay. conditions. I think it's important that that you give this discussion prior to going into more on the mold topic because, and that's why I was kind of pointing out there's two species of dust mite where we've got maybe more than a million species of mold um, mold exists in water-damaged environments, which will have more than just mold in it. And it took a long time 
to get from point A to where we are now with dust mites, and I wondered if you comment on how difficult doing the same thing is with with mold. Yeah, sure. But so this, I just want to add one more thing about the dust mites. So, so I do encourage everyone who's interested in this to, to get hold of the house dust mite parameter as it's published. It's open access, and I'm sure that. I don't know, Cliff can find a way to post it or whatever, the link. But um but but so so all the medical stuff has gone through in this in the house dust mine uh, parameter, which in my judgment is a tour de force and the leader of our committee, a really important and active uh, academic allergist Jay Portnoy, uh, deserves an immense amount of credit for this effort. Um and um and it's it's in the publication. It's like forty five pages of text and three hundred and fifty references, and then it goes through recommendations for diagnosis and treatment um, uh, in a stepwise fashion with grades of evidence. Like in other words, we recommend you do this, and we're you know the evidence is absolutely finest kind. Uh, you know, so it's all organized that way but but on top of that though there was something really important that's new and why i feel this your community joe should at least hear a little bit about what 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 uh, you know the importance of these parameters and that is for the very first time there's actually substantive discussion about the buildings in it in a medical context and um so there's obviously the when you're sick you can take drugs and take treatment but there's also the issue of avoiding the exposure in this case that that causes the problem so i'm allergic to ragweed and thus i'm taking antihistamines at the present time <laughs> yep. because i can't avoid the air that i in the outside world um dust mites are essentially unavoidable in a building but you can do a lot to make sure that they don't um, um, they uh, that the um, the exposure to them goes to a much lower level than otherwise. So there's there's in in practical terms there's two in my view really exciting things in the parameter. One of them is that there's a uh, uh, I promise you a good discussion of the issue of relative humidity. So previous guidances on dust mites have indicated the fact uh, that dust mites um, don't do all that well if the humidity is below a certain uh, value. And so the, it was in the minds, as it is of many lay people, um, and God forbid some experts, that if you measure the RH in the center of the room, that that's informative. But I suspect that most, if not all, of those listening today or will listen know full well that the temperature differences between walls, windows, and floors, whether you live in Louisiana or whether you live in Ottawa in the winter, um, that the walls, windows, and floors and the center of the room, the temperatures can be all over the quite different. Mm -hmm. It's usually cooler. So, so what, 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 what's clearly evidenced and explained in very good terms, I think, to the doctors is to tell the patients that they should, 
you know, check the RH at different locations in their house to try to get a sense of whether what we might call there's condensing surfaces, um, uh, you know, that, that would elevate the humidity where the dust mites like to live, which it, it does include, of course, in, in um, fabric-covered furniture and, and floors. And the second thing that I think is incredibly important is that um, because house dust itself, all the different stuff that's in there, including skin scales, is quite hydroscopic. And if the floor is a little cooler down there, it means that's Happy Valley for the survival and proliferation of house dust mates. So when you walk across the carpet, the particles burst in the air and you get an exposure then. And I that's absolutely been measured. People have put little samplers near the noses of people and showed where they're getting exposure to hostess mite. It's not all in their beds. So we tell them to, um, you know, really make a big effort to reduce the fine dust in in the carpets. So the, another thing to lay down about the dust mite parameter, and this is important in residential homes for, for health, is is that we've explained and signaled to the physician community to try to get people to uh, more effectively reduce exposure b- uh, by taking a number of steps, one of which is, is, you know, cleaning with a good quality vacuum cleaner. And the other thing that we do that is we m- mean to be helpful to the physician, and this picks up on something you asked a second ago, Joe, uh, is that there's a map, a Kloppen map, or like like an ASHRAE map of of the United States and Canada, that shows from epidemiology studies the basically um, if you live in this part of the United States, what are the odds that uh, your patient is going to be allergic to hostess mites, hmm. um, and uh, and that that triggers because that's based on medical evidence. That triggers, we hope, some some better uh, discussion and education between doctor and patient. And and is this the first parameter that included other than you know um, uh, methods other than you know treating them with uh, medications, etc. That that went into. I would say the short. I would say the answer is in detail. The answer is yes. I think it. It it really was a, a big step forward, um, and you know the previous material from the allergy physicians was that humidity mattered, and that's true. But as this community knows, that where that where you measure humidity has a great deal um, to um, 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 matters a great deal to what the outcome will be, and I, I think that is very significant. I think the specific evidence-based recommendation that, uh, you know, that reducing exposure by, you know, taking some um, humidity management steps and and by reducing fine particles in in the carpet, which allow the growth of these creatures, not just letting them accumulate like other uh, contaminants. Um, you know, I think that that is in some ways uh, transformative in that particular context. And prior to breaking for halftime and then going into the same discussion with mold, 
I'm just curious, how controversial was getting that information into the dust mite parameter at the time? Yeah, um, I think, uh, well, firstly, I've emphasized that these, I think these, um, it, I've emphasized these parameters are developed with great care by demonstrated experts and um and uh, and and uh, i think um i think a more, i think my feeling is that it wasn't so much controversial as a surprise hmm. interesting all right and, and and so let me can I, if i can just say Please. one more thing yes. before we drop this and that is that this is useful to those of you who go into buildings because it allows in some way for you to say well <clears throat> You know, the allergy doctors agree that, you know, cleaning more effectively, and by which I mean particulate cleaning, not chemicals in particular, is uh, good. You know, I think that's the signal that, that, that this community needs to, to, to pay and also consider uh, in, in their evaluations and their work. Agreed. Anyway. Very important. Very important. All right. We're going to break and, and take 90 seconds to thank our sponsors. We'll be back with the second half of our interview with Dr. J. David Miller in about 90 seconds. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview with Dr. J. David Miller. Professor Miller, let's let's get into the mold issue now. Um, I don't know. You know, prior to the break, we talked about there only being the two species of dust mite that you had to work with, and that you know, even though they are, um, there are other 
part- particles, etc., that um, are found in the same, you know, environment. Um, it doesn't seem to me as it would be as complicated as trying to do the same thing for mold. Can you comment on that? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so the, I think um, I think most of us, and certainly me, who've been involved with the mold journey, uh, shares some important features with the story I told you about dust mites, which is dead simple. And the first is that when the problem was started to become a nuisance in the early 80s, uh, and then towards the, in the next decade or so, um, again, there was the same cycle of anger, denial, resentment, acceptance <laughs> that had to be gone through. Uh, you know, people said anyone who thought that mold was a health problem in a building was crazy. And in fact, up in, in 1988, 1988, the same year that the WHO said dust mites were, in fact, a substitute problem, um, the ACGH more or less said in their guidance that if mold was present in buildings, it was an ugly, it was ugly, but not notably a health hazard. I was able to get them to change that the next year. Today, imagine someone saying that material growth of mold in a building wasn't a problem. But but that's how long, it's, I mean, it really isn't that long ago that that was the common wisdom. Um, so there's no question that there's a lot of complexity there um, in general. Uh, um, and, um, and, and the journey there, of course, was that generally... Um, in an official way, governments got on to this as a problem first, um, at least from a research perspective. And then I, I think arguably the, the uh, industrial hygienists were the first large group to get really active. And by the middle of the 90s, had issued you know guidance right not so long after the New York guidelines in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was, you know, followed by uh, arguably the engineering community, ASHRAE, and so on. Um, and then public health communities, meaning the the National Academy of Science report in 2004, um, and the uh, WHO report ultimately in 2009. So it 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 you know went from you know this is no problem at all to some reasonably good consensus that there is a problem by. Well, 2005. Let's just say 11 years ago, um, and and the the material that the Quad AI committee produced on mold, which was released in in May and June of this year, um, is really the arguably the first response of the medical, the relevant medical community to this as an issue that many of us have been trying to wrestle with for quite a while now. Um, so. The, the point I was trying to make there is that why only now is there any consideration at all? And, and part of it is that that long journey of time and progression through the different professional communities had to be uh, um, um, addressed, mainly because when you're treating someone, you don't want to make a mistake. And, and then secondly, because the... The uh, of what you said, Joe. The 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 problems with the um, fact that the number of molds that are important in buildings is at least in the hundreds. 
um, you know, going through every one of them, identifying, you know, what are the active agents, measuring them in exposed populations, measuring them in the environment and doing the studies. Um, you know, as somebody who's been privileged to be given really large amounts of money to do these studies, it is so expensive to do this that, um, you know, it, it takes a long time and is not, you know, doesn't go very fast um, in, in, in terms of even getting awareness uh, up there. So there's, in terms of where, how long it took to get some, you know, consensus information out to physicians, it, 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 it because the journey has to be done no matter what you know regardless there there all those steps have to be taken taken into account now in terms of of the the specificity of the advice how do you link those hundreds of species and conditions to particular health outcomes um you know that's enormously more difficult um and 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 from a a medical perspective or a clinical perspective, the hardest thing for um, that community and some public health communities to understand is that the health effects associated with fungi demonstrated in epidemiology studies well done all over the world in many populations from Japan to you know, all over Scandinavia, and certainly in the United States and Canada, where we have big, powerful studies, the biggest and most, um, the largest studies um, um, uh, in the most number of people of anywhere in the world, um, um, done since 1989 about, um, is um, is that the, the health effects are strange. So with house dust mite allergy, you're going to be exposed if under certain conditions in your own genetics, you're going to acquire allergy, uh, you're going to suffer symptoms, there are treatments for it, there are drugs for it, and as we discussed, there's some things you can do with your home. With mold, um, the signal right from the beginning epidemiologically was that if you live or work in a building with material amounts of mold uh, damage, mold and dampness damage, um, that you're more likely to be allergic to everything. So that made no sense at all uh, for about 25 years. Hmm. If you think about it, you're allergic to dust mites, they're there, makes sense. If you're allergic, if you're exposed in a large way to mold, um, uh, you're you can acquire allergy to one of a number of fungi. I've demonstrated that after I discovered the allergens and measured them. Uh, but again, there are hundreds of them. But the signal is that if if you live in a or work in a material moldy building, that you're more likely to be allergic to dust mites, to pollen, to to everything. And that really did make no sense. Hmm. So wrestling with the idea that fungi in some way were different um uh you know was it's a huge challenge and and so the controversy in a medical context for me can be deconstructed that way the epidemiology signals made no sense um and so you know what had to change is is um is a lot of basic work had to be done plus the epidemiology 
to understand why that was. So I always say that when there's more storks born, this is true, there are more babies born. <laughs> so when you have correlations, you need to know whether storks come from babies or not, or if you see what I mean. Yes. Uh, so, so the long journey part of it uh, here was because the nature of the health signal was more complex, and there was at the time no no idea at all of what a mechanism could be. Um, and it, it's only recently, in the last three or four years, that there's been some some fairly good resolution. Not completely, of course. That'll take another five or six or ten years. But but at least we have, in a quantal sense, why we might see those epidemiological signals. Well, let's let's go ahead and follow up on that. What what do we know now in the last three or four years that we didn't know before? Yeah. So, um, well, I, I I just want to drift back then to uh, cockroaches. Okay. So so cockroaches make an allergen. I think that makes sense, and no one who lives in the in the southeast of the U.S. would not know that, likely. There aren't any cockroaches to speak of where I live. It's too cold uh, so far, anyway. And, um, and, uh, but, but there's something else that, that is seen. There's also a health effect that's seen that ultimately is attributed to the thing their shell is made out of, which is a form of chitin. So chitin is a polymer, and it's pretty tough. Like, you know, as I'm sure everybody knows, you see a dead cockroach and the cockroach shell is there, it's not going anywhere anytime soon, Mm -hmm. and it isn't going anywhere anytime soon. (laughs) But it will break up into tiny pieces. And it turns out that that, um, that, um, there's um, populations of humans and animals that have in their genome um, um, the ability to express an enzyme that breaks that polymer into little pieces. Now, God only knows, and I mean that in a Christian way or a theological way, um, why that is. It just is. Uh, Much like we have a a receptor for the fungal glucan, we don't know why we have it, but we have it. It's it's one of the reasons why there are health issues with fungi. Um, And... um, and it turns out that when you breathe a tiny frag- fragment of uh, of uh, chitin, it breaks into pieces, and those pieces uh, turn on systems that um, that are inflammatory. Again, they, it's lost in the midst of time why that should be, uh, but that's harmful. So, so one of the things that in the in the cockroach parameter that was. Um, that was new to the allergy community, at least the broad allergy community, was that there are uh, part of the health uh, signal from cockroaches comes from this problem that they, they there's uh, uh, in some human in some asthmatic populations there's um, the potential to uh, to uh, degrade the chitin in the, in the fragments that you breathe, and that has contributes to the to the health effect. So it turns out that the same broad thing happens with fungi, except it's worse. And and there's there's the, pretty easy to think about it. One of them is that they're also made out of a form of chitin, 
uh, the the outer walls, the strong walls, uh, um, fungal chitin, you could call it. Mm -hmm. And when it breaks down, same deal. They contain the molds that grow in buildings, uh, at least the ones that are like Aspergillus penicillium, that type of fungus, make uh, a particular form of another polymer, uh, which is called beta-1,3-D glucan. And it turns out that we have a glucan, or it's called a dectin receptor in, me- in medicine. And again, we, we don't know why we have it, but it's a, it, it turns out that if you turn it on, it causes inflammation. So two of the exposures that you get in a moldy building, whereas I'm sure everybody in this call knows about that most of the exposure is to tiny fragments of the fungi that break apart, is that it's actually turning on switches that exist and that connect to in, uh, inflammatory pathways. So inflammation on your skin, if you cut yourself and it turns all red, well, that has good and bad effects. Uh, when it happens in your lungs, it's essentially universally bad, well, almost always bad. Another thing that fungi have is, of course, they do make allergens. Um, there are occupational illnesses associated with fungal allergy. People have known about that for centuries, actually. Um, and, you know, the thing is, we know a lot about the allergens of the fungi that occur in outdoor air. And really, until people like me came along, no one cared whether the fungi that most of us know and love in buildings actually make allergens. So they make allergens and people get allergic to it. And I know that because I've been able to measure antibodies uh, in in atopic uh, in the sera of atopic uh, individuals in hundreds well thousands of serum samples that mainly come from the US so so people are definitely exposed and if you're allergic to something including pollen for hay fever it's a health effect um, and then the the third and most unattractive part is that Fungi are rather more related to us than cockroaches or dust mites, and many of their uh, enzymes are awfully similar to ours, and um, uh, but not totally similar to ours. And our immune system reacts unfavorably to that. So, so it's a complex story, but the big picture is that there are particular agents that we can measure and know about more. Uh, we know quite a bit about the how they act on receptors in, in our lungs, and they are turning on broadly inflammatory pathways, and that um, that is general. You know, that in in short is 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 bad. Um, none of the other allergens, uh, other than uh, the small example of the chitin in the cockroaches, furry pets, rodents, dust, dust mates, they don't do this. Hmm. And, and so it was, it was that change in understanding that fungi are different um, that allowed us to be a little bit more um, um, connect the information about damp buildings and health to a medical community in a more effective way. Now, one of the other topics that regularly comes up when, when we discuss mold in buildings is mycotoxins. And, and you are yeah. you know, world-renowned for working with and understanding mycotoxins. I'm wondering if you could comment on 
I had a question which was basically, you know, can people in a water-damaged building inhale enough mycotoxin to cause health effects? But I don't know if that's the right question. Why don't I just ask you to comment on that topic? Well, I, 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 I think it's a perfectly good question. It's a question that's been asked since, you know, 25 years. Uh, uh, you know, the early people who were ordered when I worked for the Canadian government, somebody came to my office and said, you're going to work on moldy buildings. And I said, I don't think so. And they said, yeah, you are. <laughs> so so most in the same in the U.S., the NIOSH folks that were first asked to get involved, they had previously been working in the context of, you know, agricultural workers and exposures. Um, uh, so it's a question that's been asked right from the beginning. Um, so, um, I mean, the, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, so here, here is what I would say. And I said, you saw me say this in Boulder. So at least you can, you can correct me if I'm changing my tune, but, but what I said is that here's the things that we believe matter a lot, uh, which are the, the, um, the form of glucan that's in fungi, the um, uh, the f the other polymer um, uh, beta one three D glucan, the allergens from the fungi, and the the enzymes that are really rather too similar to ours, um, and um, and and uh, and then I did bring up that indeed fungi that grow in damp buildings make not mycotoxins in the same sense as um, in the strict sense of that word which is in exclusively really reserved for the toxins that occur in corn and peanuts and weed and so on, but, um, but are certainly low molecular weight compounds that have uh, toxicities. Um, and, um, and, and we know that, um, that uh, as you're exposed to the chitin and the glucan and the allergens, there will be some exposure to those compounds um and it you know how then the question is are there effects of that and the answer is at least in laboratory animals in doses that are theoretically possible in buildings the answer is yes there are effects but the real question there is how much does it matter and um and and so so the way that at least i think about that is that that um, is that the things that I've emphasized so far, which are the the, chitin, the form of chitin and glucan, the uh, allergens and these you know other proteins that are present in in uh, fungi that are too sim well that are you're distressingly similar to some of ours, um, that they matter the most. So probably they're explaining ninety percent of the unusual health signal that one sees in fungi. Now, whether it's 85 or 95 or 75 or 99, uh, you know, 1% rather, uh, that is not known because that would vary by individual and circumstance. But so so it, it's, it would be wrong to say that that the low molecular weight compounds have no impact whatsoever, but they're not in any way seen at least today as a major driver of the population health signal that that uh, occurs. I do want to say, though, that if you are remediating um, um, 
heavily molded material, uh, cardboard boxes and cellulosic material that you would reasonably expect a lot of, and I'm going to say it, stachybotrys on it, mm-hmm. and you weren't wearing personal protection and you were carrying that material, you are absolutely going to get enough of an exposure to cause uh, uh, explicit damage from the metabolites it makes, uh, which are extremely toxic compounds. And and um, and now I I do submit who would do such a stupid thing today in 2016, but but is it is it flat out impossible to get a big dose? It clearly isn't. That people have studied. Uh, you know, the exposure if you're not wearing a respirator, and it turns out, unsurprisingly, if you're carrying, you know, highly molded material close to your chest, that you get one wicked dose of it, uh, and that is absolutely bad, right, from, from, and there the metabolites might matter quite a bit. And how would that exposure manifest in, in you know, um would would the people have headache? Would they have bleeding? You know. Um... Oh no, they get really really sick. Okay. Okay. You'd be you'd be going to the hospital. I and, see. And in a way, I mean, let's remember why did New York City, um, um, why is New York the father of the mold guidelines, or at least the guidelines that came out of our committee uh, in New York? Uh, why have they stood the test of time? Um, mold is bad. If you got a mold problem, fix the water. So were there specific- uh, clean it up under safe conditions and reduce the particulate. It was because uh, some municipal workers had been assigned the task of cleaning out um, basements in uh, municipal facilities that had been flooded and turned into a mold factory. And uh, people ended up in some of the workers in in Mount Sinai, uh, in the Selikoff Institute, which is how they got interested to be to offer some advice in this area. So, yeah, you get really sick. And the other thing that I wanted to ask is, you know, it seems like the um, the allergy and asthma effects are more related to immune system type responses. With the mycotoxin issue, um, and you deal with this a lot with grain and so on and so forth. Is the biggest concern cancer, or is it more immediate health effects? No, but so again, in in the in the context I described, and I do want to. Hopefully, there's enough minutes to say a couple of things about the inspection um, uh, part of our mold advice, not just the health effects. Um, is is um, is is very low exposures do um, um, contribute to the inflammatory process. Um, they are not, the dose is nowhere near enough of any compound unless you're sniffing it, as I described, not wearing a respirator and handling and disturbing moldy materials for enough time. Nowhere near enough for uh, a health effect, uh, uh, at least not in my opinion. Um, that would be overly dramatic. The things that we know are the things that I've I've discussed. Okay, and so I did want to. I I know that we're hopefully almost done, but 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 for this community, I did want to say that there's something I think really important. Um, one of the so about fungi, we produced five 
separate papers that look at health effects, look at the mechanistic stuff that Joe asked me about. Um, a really good, I think, uh, um, paper that's for physicians to help them um, uh, discern in a few questions based on evidence, like the dust mites ones I described, uh, uh, from their patients whether it would make sense to have uh, house, their house inspected by somebody who's knowledgeable. And there's, you know, some uh, some information given about what knowledgeable means, in, at least in our perspective. And um, and that's really important because it, it, it could mean that that there will be some more um, emphasis placed for the at least the, the those who can afford it uh, to come out and have somebody look at your house for things that you can see. And uh, and you know I think that's a that's a huge step forward. But the other thing is that there's a a paper that discusses uh, medically relevant. Um, 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 home inspections. And I do encourage those of you who do that to get access to it because there's things that physicians need to hear that normally we might not give if we're inspecting, you know, for an engineering reason or for an insurance reason. There's specific types of information that physicians need to hear, and there's specific things that we, that they absolutely don't want to be Told. In other words, don't give any medical judgments and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's there's uh, there's um, there's a, a list of um, um, of the kinds of questions that go to really a gold standard home inspection for medicine. So again, as we all know, there's good ones for industrial hygiene. There's good ones if you're you know a contractor and you're trying to spec a job. There's good inspections if you're dealing with an insurance company, but but there are some things that are different and different um, kinds of information that physicians need to hear, um, and these are these are really described. So I think it's a great opportunity to improve the quality of the inspections that we do and the work that we do all together. Is there also guidance in there on the remediation once the inspection is done? Not, um, not any more than you don't already see. I mean, the the okay. guidance is con- congruent with the Green Book, with uh, other similar publications, as you would expect. Um, you know, and 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 so basically, there's a, a reference to the appropriate, you know, incorporation of appropriate ideas that have you know been involved in our practitioner community for the last decade or so particularly. Um, uh, you know, of course, there is uh, emphasis placed on on the fine particle cleaning for obvious reasons. Um, and, um, and there's, you know, cautions about, you know, chemical use and, uh, and again, some language about who, how you would evaluate if the person is appropriately qualified. It's much more that the nature and the de- the particular kinds of information um, that is needed uh, by a physician to move forward is uh, is is a little different than than uh, and actually in some ways very different from you know some of the other purposes that we do this work for. And one one of the things that makes this a little tough is that I, I believe. The Journal for Allergy and Clinical Immunology, you would have to pay for those 
those papers is there a way yeah. and if it had gotten into a practice parameter which we didn't even really get a chance to talk about uh, whether that will happen or not it would be out for the public to use and and for our yeah any comments that's on a how very good can... point and uh, uh certainly anyone who is uh so um you know that is uh, how it is um i um i uh i uh it's it's you know it's that's how it is for most of the scientific literature i so i've offered two answers i guess one of them is of course any one of the authors is on an individual basis is quite free to provide a copy um um there are, is a way to to uh, make uh, the manuscript version available more broadly mm-hmm. and since you've raised this I'll I'll look into that and and another thing that that at least some of us are doing is is going out there and talking about this work so it I've never been to an IQA meeting but I'll I with some others from the the task force will be speaking in at the meeting in the winter so I I think that we're sensitive to the need to push this out there, and um, but if you know one of the authors, you can ask for a copy. I appreciate that, and we are getting a little, well, we're a little bit over right now. Do you have to run anywhere? I've got one text question that... Um, all right, go ahead. All sure. right, is IgG uh, testing of value when understanding an immune reaction to mold if so, why does AAAI recommend to physicians that they don't test IgG? I don't know how quickly you can cover that, if you can. Okay, well, I mean, I'm not, I need to understand where the questioner is coming from. Yeah, when you, um, if you're allergic to something, there's a cascade of, of, of immunological reactions that includes making making uh, um, IgG and then then IgE um, and uh, so the, the 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 tricky thing is that um, that d- depends a bit on the timing of your exposure so right now undoubtedly the IgE in my serum to to ragweed allergen is quite high because I'm being uh, challenge for the probably two weeks our ragweed season will last. Mm-hmm. Um, in the middle of the winter, I would absolutely know that there would be rather negligible amounts of the IgE to the allergen of, for ragweed in my serum. So there's always a temporality there that is, is difficult to address. But, but I've already indicated that the primary reason for uh, the panel not, um, you know, endorsing, not not saying that that makes sense. And the primary reason, Joe, is one that you've raised from the beginning. There's certainly hundreds of fungi that are present in buildings, and the, as you know from watching the stuff at the molecular biology meeting, the, our understanding of what the diversity is is actually doesn't make everything we knew wrong, but it's actually telling us there's a good deal more there than we 
we uh, imagined. And and so that's a, the really huge problem is that instead of one thing yeah, that has to be measured for IgE um, or even IgG, is uh, it's actually so many that a false negative a negative doesn't mean necessarily anything, both because of timing and because of uh, because there's just so many fungi. Okay. And that, I also noticed, and I wanted to let listeners know, one of the papers was actually a, a recategorizing of, of how we, we look at the fungi, at least the allergenic fungi. That, that was an interesting yeah. paper. Uh, we'll, of course, have the link to the, the at least the abstracts in, in Cliff's blog. And the last thing I wanted to mention was that um, for those of us out here who do this work and we have mold allergies, it appears, at least from your answer to my email, that going in and getting shots to uh, build up some kind of uh, you know resistance to that or whatever is is probably not in the cards at this point. Well, as as since you're an expert on this now, Joe, you know that which of which organism would we choose? Yep. And, and do we know anything about it? And the answer is probably who knows and probably not. So. But, but, and the reason I bring that up is I think it, it again goes to what you've been saying all along here. This new information makes it even more important that we as professionals, what we do becomes more important and also that we do it and follow the guidelines that will help the physicians out there is, is very important. I, 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 and and just to reinforce that, for it, it's this is the first time that that there that it's it's been that this thinking of the importance of building science and building you know knowledgeable people about buildings is is a critical piece of of how best to treat those patients. That's it's a it's a big step forward. It'll take a while for it to be incorporated, but it's a big step forward. And with that, I think that's a perfect spot to end. I, I want to thank today's guest, uh, Dr. J. David Miller, and, and I hope we can get you back again and it's not six or eight years down the road. Okay. <laughs> thanks again for joining us. Um, I also want to say thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. I'm sure your hand is a little sore right now from writing notes on this one. I'm looking forward to the blog. Um, my engineer, John, you got to have faith. Uh, things seem to have gone real well. It sounded like we had good sound today, so I think we'll have a great recording for people up very soon. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, hey, come back next week at noon. Next Friday at noon, we're going to have our 10-year anniversary show, and we look forward to uh, having a lot of live listeners on that day, just like today. So this is Radio Joe saying thanks to everyone. We'll see you next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. Hello, Joe. This has been another IAQ Radio production.